Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, my name is Jamil Jaffer, and I'm the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Ampton Scalia Law School. I'm excited today to be co-hosting this event with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, the Center for a New American Security, and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, all terrific partners. I mean, today we'll be talking about revisiting Treasury's war, the history and future of the Treasury Department's role in national security. Uh, we're going to have two panels on this topic, uh, one uh, today, uh, obviously for the next hour, called Taking Treasury to War, Two Decades of Using Financial Measures, uh, for national security straight, statecraft. Um, then we'll have another one in December after the elections have gotten past us and we've gotten through all that conversation um, and talk about uh, the ways in which that the Treasury Department's authorities and capabilities might be applied. So I'm excited today to have an amazing panel uh, with us. Um, let me start right at the top uh, with Jennifer Fowler. Uh, Jen is the director of Brunswick Group's Washington, D.C. office. She's an ex expert in illicit finance and economic sanctions related issues, having served in senior positions at Treasury for nearly two decades. In her role as a Treasury, uh, Jen developed and led the implementation of counter illicit finance strategies and policies. Most recently, she was the Acting Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, as well as the Deputy Assistant Secretary, and served as VP of the Financial Action Task Force, the global standard setter for anti money laundering and counterfeiting in the finance of, countering the finance of terrorism. Uh, Jen has deep ex expertise in the US and international regulatory frameworks for anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, and counter-proliferation financing, as well as a range of illicit finance and sanctions risks that companies face today. She's extensive experience working with foreign governments and financial institutions to prevent, mitigate, and respond to illicit finance threats. So Jen, thanks for being with us today. Um, Dan, Dan Danny Glazier is a principal with the Financial Integrity Network and a senior advisor to the Center on Economic and Financial Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. From 2011 to 2017, Danny served as Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes in the Treasury Department's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. As Assistant Secretary, Danny was responsible for helping formulate and coordinate counterterrorist financing, AML, sanctions, and other illicit financing policies and strategies within Treasury and the U.S. government and globally. Among his responsibilities was serving as the U.S. Co-Chair of the Illicit Finance Track of the Global Counter-ISIL Coalition um, and U.S. Chair Alyssa Finance Track of the U.S.-China Strategies and Economic Strategic and Economic Dialogue. Danny also led U.S. efforts to combat illicit financing through the establishment of the U.S.-Mexico Public-Private Partnership and the U.S.-GCC Public-Private Partnership. Previously, Danny served as Treasury's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, head of the U.S. Dialogue uh, Delegation to the FATF, um, the FATF, and um, co-chair of FATF's uh, International Cooperation Review Group. So, Danny, awesome to have you with us. And last but certainly not least uh, is my good friend and, and mentor, uh, Juan Zarate. Juan is the chairman and co-founder of the Financial Integrity Network and global co-managing partner and chief strategy officer for the combined firm of K2 Intelligence and FIN. Uh, Juan is the chairman of the Center for Economic and Financial Power at FDD, um, senior advisor at CSIS, and a senior fellow at West Point's Combating Terrorism Center, as well as a member of NSI's advisory board. Juan served as deputy assistant to the president um, and Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism, the Counterterrorism Czar from 05 to 09, when I had a, a chance to briefly work with him at the White House. And in that job, Juan was responsible for developing and implementing 
U.S. counterterrorism strategy and policies related to transnational terrorist financing and transnational security threats. Juan was also the first ever Assistant Secretary of Treasury for terrorist financing and financial crimes, where he led the post-11, post-9-11 money laundering and sanctions regime um, at, in the United States, um, supervised uh, FinCEN, uh, OFAC, as well as um, the Treasury Executive Office for Asset Forfeiture. Um, he drove the innovative use of uh, Treasury's national security-related uh, powers, um, and ultimately the establishment of uh, TFI. Prior to 9-11, Juan was a federal terrorism prosecutor serving on prosecution teams for the attacks on the U.S. embassies in East Africa, including where my family's from in Tanzania and the USS Cole. So Juan, also have you with us. And of course, Juan is the author of Treasury's War, a book that gave our panel and our, and our, our series of panels uh, its name day. So Juan, awesome to have you with us. Um, for those in the audience, um, we're going to engage in a, in a back and forth dialogue. I'm going to ask some questions. Our awesome panel is going to talk to us about those questions. But this is an opportunity for you all in the audience, the over 100 of you that are out there, uh, to ask questions of our panel too. So please throw your questions in the Q&A uh, box there. We'll try and get to as many of them as possible um, and we'll just roll with it. So uh, thanks everybody for attending. Thanks to the panel for being here. And let's just jump right in if we might. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd like to start right at the top. One, you know, in your book, Treasury's War, Unleashing a New Era of Financial Warfare, came out a few years ago. You argue that since 9-11 attacks, Treasury's become critical in addressing vital geopolitical challenges across the United States, including terrorism, nuclear proliferation, um, and the, the, frankly, illicit regimes in Iran, North Korea, and Syria. Is that still your view today um, uh, when, uh, you know, that when you wrote this book a few years ago? And what is Treasury's role today when you think about the modern U.S. national security complex? Jamil, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to be on with Jen and Danny, who are uh, two of the great pros from whom I've learned throughout my career. And Certainly through, uh, through you, Jamil, and NSI, very proud to be a part of, uh, of this panel and, and, and your organization. Um, I think the, the striking thing about where we are in Treasury's role is how obvious it is now, right? Um, back in the post-2001 period, it wasn't as obvious what Treasury's role in national security was. Back then, you had the old Office of Enforcement, the yeah. Secret Service, Customs, Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, ATF, all the elements that gave Treasury the guns and badges and, and in some ways the weight to be at the table um, uh, you know, with the, the big boys and girls of national security. Um, right. When DHS was created, Jamil, there was a, a fundamental question as to what Treasury's role would be. And there were significant existential questions as to whether or not there was any real role. And I think you know, something that Danny, Jen, Chip Ponce and I and others uh, did was to at least try to drive as aggressively this idea that Treasury does have a central role to play in trying to undermine the ability of America's enemies uh, to use the financial system to their benefit, to right. raise and move money around the world, uh, and to do everything possible to disrupt and dismantle the networks, be they terrorists, be they proliferation finance, be they uh, rogue regime related, uh, that threatened American interests. Yeah. And so fast, fast forward to 2020, Jamil, I think the, the questions actually that are being posed legitimately are, are we using these authorities too much? Are, uh, are we relying too heavily on the Treasury toolkit uh, yeah. in the absence of other strategies? Are we thinking creatively enough about how these tools mesh with other tools? But I do think the, the one lesson learned in this period is that uh, Treasury's tools are unique. Their information and financial information is incredibly valuable. Yeah. 
And at a minimum, it's a powerful complement to other elements of national power, be it law enforcement, be it diplomatic, be it intelligence, be it military, which now causes yeah. the, the world of threat finance. So all of that is still in play. And it's now a fundamental part of how we think about national security. Maybe just a final point. I think moving forward, the, the question is going to be, continue to be, um, how does Treasury organize around economic and financial campaigns that are much broader than just sanctions? We see right. what's emerging with China. This is an issue of not just sanctions and money laundering, but also CFIUS and export yeah. controls um, and the use of positive economic tools like the Exim Bank or uh, the Development Finance Corp. So this is a broad spectrum. And I think right. the next administration is going to have to deal with what's Treasury's role, broadly speaking, in right. a broader economic competition. Yeah. So, you know, Jen, on the point, on the point that, 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 that uh, Juan just made, you know, there is this discussion going on, right? Have we overutilized Treasury's tools? In particular, you know, have we overutilized the sanctions tool as a tool of foreign policy? It almost seems today, you know, with, with two successive administrations um, being sort of, you know, resistant to using the military arm of power or perhaps more resistant than perhaps the Bush administration uh, that Juan and I served in uh, to use the military element of power, sanctions have become a critically central tool of effectuating U.S. foreign policy, sort of getting our adversaries to do what we want alongside in this administration, tariffs and other financial measures. Are you concerned? What do you think about that claim that sanctions are too much or are are too big, play too big a role in our foreign policy, and uh, you know, alongside these other financial measures, is that is that a fair criticism? Um, and 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 either way, what do you think we ought to do about it going forward? Well, I think what Juan has said. I mean, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that sanctions don't exist in a vacuum. Um, there are so many other Treasury tools and authorities that are really important, and so you know, let's talk about sanctions, but let's not forget the other the other tools. And I know we'll get to those. Um, I, I think, to, you know, clearly sanctions are here to stay. They are the, the authority, the tool of first choice, I think, for, for many national security challenges. I, I believe that sanctions are most often used first, well, though, when the U.S. doesn't really have financial skin in the game. Um, and when you look at the really more challenging issues that we're facing, you know, China, Russia, where there's real financial skin here, um, real, real issues for, for the U.S. financial system, it becomes a lot more challenging. So I think we can continue to use sanctions, but there, there have to be some parameters around how they're used. And I think of, you know, three main things that are really important there. The first is, you know, we have to use them with um, with a lot of work that we do with multilateral, we multilaterally designing and implementing sanctions um, on our own. I, I think we know that does not work very well. And then the second is um, thinking about them in the context of other tools, and this is particularly important when you are thinking about a China or Russia, um, where you, you know, the use of sanctions alone is going to be really challenging and thinking creatively, how do we use sanctions creatively in conjunction with a lot of different strategies? And then the right. last issue is use it as the thing that you touched on. Um, we need to use them judiciously. Let's use them not every, in every instance that we can, let's use them when, when they make sense. And part of right. this has to do with, you know, real engagement with the private sector and understanding what does make sense, what's going to have the intended impact that we want. And let's protect that authority and make sure that we don't um, kind of create an, an approach to it in the private sector that they start to be taking less, you know, taking sanctions less seriously. Um, right. And we into really, as we see now, I think with China, real emerging conflict of law issues that are going to be very, very challenging to overcome. 
Yeah, no, I think that's really important to sort of caution about, you know, how to utilize them. And this, I think it's really interesting to talk about uh, the role the private sector plays and, and how and that consultative mechanism that we need to have to really figure out how to use these tools most effectively. You know, it's not something the government's used to or typically does, right? Is figure out what the private sector thinks makes the most sense in this space. But to your point, it, it seems it seems like a really important thing to consider in the use of sanctions. So Danny, what are, you know, it, at the beginning of, of what Jen said, she talked about some of these other tools that we might utilize. What in your in your mind, what are the other tools that Treasury has at, the, at its disposal that might be used to effectuate uh, American foreign policy uh, other than the sort of the sanctions tool? Well, thanks, Jamil, and <clears throat> thanks for thanks for inviting me, and thanks for putting this putting this uh, this 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 uh, panel together. And it really is it's such a pleasure for me to be here with with my friends Jen and and Juan. And we worked so hard on these things together when when we were in government, and and now now to get a chance to continue to work with them outside of government has really been a, such a, a such a joy for me. Uh, with with respect to your question, uh, I think that it's important to think about. Um, because it gets right to the role of the Treasury Department, which is which is one of the one of the reasons why 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 you, why you assembled us and why the Treasury Department, as Juan pointed out, has such a central role, um, which yeah. seems relatively new. Um, but the Treasury Department is perhaps the only um, agency that has its foot in all the different elements of what is required to have an effective uh, strategy. Uh, for applying uh, financial and economic tools to advance U.S. foreign policy and U.S. national security policy. It has a quasi-diplomatic role. It has a law enforcement function. It has a regulatory function. It has a policy function. Um, it, right. it has close, uh, very, very close ties with the private sector and an understanding of the private sector, uh, perhaps uh, beyond what other agencies have. It has an understanding of how the international financial system works um, and is charged, it sees itself very much as being charged with uh, uh, protecting the international financial system from abuse, both in terms of what we're talking about now, abuse by illicit actors, but uh, abuse of, 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 of all kinds and protection of all kinds. Um, uh, Bob Kimmett, who was uh, the the deputy uh, the deputy secretary of the Treasury in the in, in the Bush administration, um, used to talk about protecting the safety, soundness, and security of the international financial system as one of the central right. of the Treasury Department. Um, so we we would approach it from that perspective, and that gave us this really unique perspective, this really uh, unique way of viewing problems. And one of the reasons why I think a lot of the Treasury actions are confusing to people. Uh, when they look at them, uh, whether yeah. it's with respect to Iran, whether it's respect to North Korea, whether it's respect to what, what, whatever the issue is, is because people who focus on North Korea are focusing it on it understandably, uh, generally from the perspective of North Korea policy, but they don't come to it from the perspective of the international financial system and how yeah. does North Korea plug into the international financial system. But that's how we came at it. Um, yeah. And that gave us a new perspective and that gave us a new set of tools. So the way we thought about it, and you could think about it um, sort of like offense and defense. So mm -hmm. on, the, on the defense side, um, or, the, or we, would, we would call it the systemic side, we talked mm -hmm. about identifying vulnerabilities in the international and domestic financial systems that made it um, a subject vulnerable to abuse by fill in the blanks, whoever we don't like. So right. uh, narcotics trafficking organizations, terrorist organizations, organized crime groups, rogue regimes. It's not hard to figure out who the United States doesn't like. So... Who, you know, how is the international domestic financial system vulnerable to abuse by those individuals, entities, and jurisdictions? And how yeah. can we close those? And that's, you could think of that as defense. And then on offense, um, 
uh, identify the uh, financial networks that support fill in the blank, same groups. Um, and how do we target those, um, you know, identify, disrupt, and dismantle uh, those financial networks? And you could think of that as offense. And then right. where it really gets cool and where it really gets fun is the interplay between the offense and the defense because they're intimately related. And so yeah. what the Treasury Department can do is it could devise these strategies that brings all of that together, that brings our regulatory authority together with our law enforcement tools, together with our sanctions tools, you know, together right. with our uh, con- connectivity with the private sector, together with the uh, networks that we have as a finance ministry and as financial officers, brings that all together to implement a strategy. And then you see that play out in something like Iran. When we started with Iran in 2006, when Secretary Paulson launched um, our, our basically our offensive against the Iranian financial system. Um, and then I spent the next seven years um, listening to people tell me uh, that our sanctions against Iran could never work. But it was never sanctions against Iran. It was our whole effort against, against the Iranian right. financial system and economy. And now today, the only thing everybody agrees upon with respect to Iran is that they came to the table for sanctions relief. Even right. the Iranians agree with that. Right. It's the only point of agreement that the entire international community has is that sanctions right. work. Yeah. Um, and that's because it was not just sanctions, but it was that whole suite of expertise and strategizing um, strategy, if you will, that, yeah. uh, that really, you know, that really, um, uh, that, that really made it work. And we've seen it across the board, whether we're talking about Syria or Russia or, 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 or terrorist organizations or whatever the case may be, it's right. that sort of uh, strategic perspective that Treasury brings to bear that's made it really special and important. No, I think that's, I think it's a great point. And, you know, to your point about offense and defense, you know, uh, Jen, one of the a couple of questions in the, uh, in the chat box that I wanted to run past you, um, you know, um, Nancy Boswell asks, you know, do we worry and how do you think about whether other countries will find ways to avoid the U.S. financial system? We start imposing all these measures, right? One of the concerns is, you know, the U.S. goes on offense too aggressively, people just go circumvent, right? China will create a, uh, you know, a system outside of ours and, and people will utilize that. Do we worry about that? Do we worry about mechanisms we might even create uh, when we engage in sanctions relief um, uh, to, that, that might be used as that. And then Richard Berner asks uh, on a related note, right, uh, to Juan's point, right, how, are, there, are there effective character incentives we might use rather than using disincentives and, and maybe creating paths for evasion? Um, might it be better to create incentives? Are there incentives we might use? So it's so sort of two, a set of combo questions to you, Jen. Thoughts on either of those? Sure. I mean, I think that first question is, is a really, um, <clears throat> it's a big question. Um, I think, sure, uh, countries are always going to try to find a way to avoid complying with sanctions, whether we use sanctions judiciously or we really, um, you know, go overboard and use them um, more than maybe we should. Um, The question is, can they really, you know, in the end, um, fully evade uh, sanctions that when you are dealing with the U.S. financial system and it's, you know, it's global reach and and um, the U.S. dollar, there are obviously concerns about that. So are we right. going to work our way out of our, our center, you know, our center of gravity in the, in the global financial system? Um, honestly, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, there are a lot of different points of view on this. Um, but I do think it's really, really hard in the end to successfully and completely evade U.S. sanctions. I think our enforcement has been um, pretty impressive. Uh, I think it's really hard to conduct a financial transaction, even a single financial transaction that doesn't somehow, you know, cross border end up 
um, touching the U.S. financial system. So it's, it's challenging to do on a large scale. Um, it's possible and people will try to do it, but it's challenging to do. So I think we have to continue to do the things that we think make sense in terms of sanctions to look at what the possible effects are and, and do our best there. And then we'll come behind and enforce it. Um, but we know that's always going to be part of the, of the, the, the you know, risk benefit calculation. Yeah. So, so follow up on that. And I, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on incentives, but um, as a follow-up, do we, that, that's true today, right? It's, it's almost impossible to avoid the U.S. financial system. You can't avoid it today. Do we worry that there is the potential for the creation of alternative systems, you know, particularly with the expansion of digital currencies and, you know, Bitcoin and Libra and, I mean, you name it, right? Um, there's a lot of people saying or suggesting, I don't, don't mean to use that sort of a Trumpism, right? a lot of people say, um, but, uh, but there's, a, there's a lot of discussion about this idea that there might be major alternatives. Do we worry that that edge that we have, the ability to use the reliance of the international financial system and the, the reliance of the U.S. financial system um, as a crutch, do we worry that's going away? Is that, is that, is that, any, is that going to happen anytime soon or do you not worry about that? Jen? That's me. Um, I, look, I don't worry about it in the short term. Um, I think the question about digital currencies is a great one. Um, for me, there's still, a, you know, I think that it's a long way we have to go before you can completely use a digital currency and you never right. come back to um, the traditional financial system. Right. Um, if we get there one day, um, I have full confidence that Treasury will figure out a way to enforce um, sanctions, even in that kind of environment. That's, right. I think that's sort of the genius of the way we're set up. Um, and the people that work there will figure out a way to do that. Um, for now, I'm not worried about that in the short term, though. Yeah. So I've actually got a couple of questions on crypto and I'll, and I'll come back to that. But, but um, Juan, over to you on the question about incentives. So, you know, um, you, you mentioned them in your earlier part. What are you, what are you thinking about when you, when you, when you think about uh, ways we might, uh, we might be more uh, productive going forward than just using sort of the stick, right? What, do, what does a carrot look like and, 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 and how it might we effectively utilize it? Jamil, it's a great question. And I think it goes to the, to the baseline of the powers that we have. I think, um, we, we, we have all the powers that Danny discussed at, at the core. It's the attractiveness, the openness, the fluidity of our financial system. Right. Um, and frankly, the stability of our political system as well, to be honest, that is such a powerful feature of, uh, of American financial and economic power across the world. It's not just the role of the dollar as the chief reserve currency. It's not just the role of the dollar as the chief trade currency. Talk about oil and other uh, commodities in which uh, the, the prices are, are earmarked in dollars and have to clear through New York banks, et cetera. Um, it's really that the strength and power and, um, and, and transparency of that system. And so that really is at the core of it. And so in some ways, the strategies ultimately have to be about reinforcing those baseline pillars of power. Um, and part of that is uh, the ability to exclude actors from the financial system, which is really uh, what much of the focus uh, in terms of sanctions campaigns and, and these strangulation constriction campaigns, as we talked about them, that's really about excluding bad actors, bad capital rogue, rogue networks from the legitimate financial system. And, and we, we are great at that. I think Jen described it. I think Danny, uh, you know, performed artwork with it when it came to ISIL in that regard. So we're really good at that. Where we need to get better is reinforcing those fundamentals of our power and figuring out where financial inclusion becomes an element of power. So I'll give you two examples, Jamil. 
Yeah. One is um, we, we have gone around the world trying to explain to everybody how Huawei is a risk to, to security, right? Yeah. And, and they are, um, and it's a legitimate argument. Um, what we haven't done is to create the alternatives for investment in alternatives to 5G. And so we're scrambling now with our allies, with the private sector to figure out how do you replace a Huawei in environments where Huawei is the cheapest solution, the best solution, right. and is embedded already in places like Germany or Mexico. So, so what's the replacement? We have to have a strategy that is actually proactive and positive in terms of yes. what the, the elements, and we don't have structures, frankly, that allow us to do that nimbly or easily, in part because it has us tugging at the private sector in ways that are very uncomfortable for our system. Right. Likewise, on the CFIUS side, Jamil, this is something I've argued for for a long time. Um, and, and you would appreciate this, Jamil, given your, your deep background and experience. We should have long ago established a CFIUS process for the five eyes, which is to say, yes. why aren't we creating both the positive and negative elements of what investment security looks like for purposes of broader alliance national and international security. And so there should be uh, a collective sense and it's starting to evolve of how we think about risks of Chinese, Russian, other kinds of investment in high-end technologies, 5G, quantum, uh, yeah. robotics, et cetera. But also Jamil, what's the positive side? Where are the funds that are preferred, for yeah. example, that have gateways into and preferences to investing in exquisite US technologies and into Silicon Valley. We haven't figured out what that consortium or alliance of positive investment looks like. Yeah. Um, and maybe I'll give you a third example. China in part, what they're trying to do is challenge within the system and, and create alternatives. They're clearly doing that through the BRI, uh, One Belt, One Road program right. and the, the reliance on the remnant B and the WAN. You know, right. we have to think, and I think the administration has tried this, how do we think about investment in places that matter to us that replaces Chinese investment for infrastructure and other projects that will matter from a strategic perspective? Yes. DOD thinks about this. Treasury and Commerce think about this. The trade rep thinks about this, but we don't cohesively think about what's our positive strategy for investment maybe not just from the US, but from our allies in these yeah. key parts of the world and projects. So that's what I'm talking about. And it has to be a holistic sense of national economic security. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great point. I mean, and, and clearly the Chinese are thinking about this strategically, right? They have a plan, right? They have an agenda for investing overseas and creating markets and the like. Um, and, and they, because of, you know, one party control of the government have this ability to, to set preferences and, and and incentives for investment. In fact, they do it. They do it offensively uh, when it comes to, uh, to to foreign governments, right? With Japan and 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 rare earth rare earths back in 2010. And so we've seen that. You're exactly right, Danny. I want to come back to you though on this question that, that Jen and I sort of talk about 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 of cryptocurrencies and the like. Um, you know, Brian Smith, one of our visiting fellows, asks, "What is the potential for the sort of future digital currencies in circumventing U.S. sanctions?" Um, what other things uh, might we do? Uh, what other things might undermine the use of U.S. sanctions and um, you know, another another attendee asks, you know, is crypto the next frontier and is it going to be a real challenge or are we just going to are we going to be able to deal with it effectively? Jen seems to think that uh, and I think probably correctly that uh, Treasury will find a way. Uh, what's your thinking on this and, and how do you see crypto playing into this larger uh, dynamic of potential uh, ways that U.S. sanctions and our, and our U.S. 
U.S. tool regime, U.S. toolkit might be undermined? Well, first of all, I, I think it's I, I think it's it, it becomes too easy to lump everything everything together under the under the rubric of, of, of sanctions or, or, or Treasury's financial tools. You have to look at who the targets are. So um, your approach um, and your toolkit um, and your goals uh, with respect to using financial tools of financial pressure are going to be different when you're talking about the targeting an individual versus targeting a group or organization versus targeting a jurisdiction. Um, when you're targeting a jurisdiction, uh, of course, you know, the, the, the Iranians are really smart. The North Koreans are really smart. They're going to figure out ways to do individual transactions when they need to do an individual transaction. And all the sanctions regimes in the world aren't going aren't to stop them from conducting a transaction when they need to conduct a transaction. But that's not the goal of the sanctions. The goal of the sanctions is to create broad, uh, you know, broad financial and economic pressure on them to gain um, you know, diplomatic advantage uh, to uh, to put them um, uh, to put them in a position where it's hard for them to accomplish broadly the goals. It's hard for them to manage their economy, um, and you're not going to manage your economy um, on uh, using cryptocurrency. You're, you're, not, right. you're not you're not going to do it. Uh, so yeah, are you know is the uh, is is the is the IRGC going to be able to figure out um, how to do a particular transaction with cryptocurrency? I don't know. May, Maybe they will. Probably won't be that huge a transaction, to be honest with you. Um, and there's, you know, and and there's uh, the law enforcement agencies and the intelligence agencies, um, and working with the law enforcement intelligence agencies, our partners, you know, will, you know, will will try to target that. Um, if you're talking about criminal organizations um, or, or or terrorist organizations um, or uh, or or actually individuals, um, you know, then you're getting more into the cat and mouse game. And then, um, of, of course, um, you know, cryptocurrency becomes becomes more of a concern. Now, the fact of the matter is, is, is crypto, you know, cryptocurrency, uh, and and maybe you know, maybe the people who, who who are supporting cryptocurrency should come up with a better name for it than cryptocurrency, uh, because it immediately makes it sound, you know, you know, you know quite insidious. Um, but it's not right. necessarily insidious at all. And in fact, um, a lot of these uh, digital currencies and cryptocurrencies. Um, are set up in a way that can make them more transparent, frankly, um, mm-hmm. certainly than dealing in, in cash, certainly than dealing in precious metals, um, and even certainly dealing with the financial system when, when the full uh, array of, of AML, CFT compliance protections are, are, are not in place. So it yeah. really depends um, uh, on whether you're regulating appropriately uh, the, uh, the, the, the cryptocurrency service providers. Um, and yeah. there's all sorts of ways of doing it. And that's a really, um, that's a, that, that's sort of one of the cutting edge, uh, you know, discussions that's going on right now in the AML CFT world. But I, I think certainly uh, the AML CFT uh, uh, regime, the global regime, the global standards can be applied uh, to the cryptocurrency space in a way that allows it to continue to provide the innovations that it's providing. Um, and also, not only establish, ensure that there's transparency, but even more transparency. And really at the end of the day, the whole purpose, the entire yeah. purpose of the AML CFT regulatory supervisory regime is to create financial transparency so yeah. that criminals and terrorists and others can't hide in the international financial system. And so that legitimate law enforcement efforts can occur within the international financial system. And yeah. there is nothing inherent with cryptocurrency that, that, that prohibits that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really helpful. And I think it's really interesting to think about 
sort of crypto as being an opportunity to actually create transparency uh, relative to cash. I mean, the whole idea of having this distributed blockchain ledger where you can see what's happening, you may not know who the transactors are, but you see the transactions. That's interesting how that may be actually be able to bring some measure of transparency. Jen, I want to ask you about, you know, Danny mentioned sort of cutting edge things that are happening in, in this space. Um, and one of the things that I, one of our questioners, uh, Terry Gogan, asked about um, about uh, ransomware, right? And this recent announcement by Treasury that payment uh, of ransoms uh, relative to ransomware may run afoul of sanctions laws. And so we know that some of the most sanctioned countries in the world, North Korea jumps to mind, uh, use ransomware aggressively, WannaCry as one example of that. Um, we have the potential for ransomware attacks to take place uh, in the lead up to the next week before this election and maybe in the aftermath of that. Um, as people try to get information about elections, whether it's voting, uh, voter rolls, or or or, or results, uh, do we worry that um, that this uh, this use of or this this cons this claim that the sanctuary might apply to payments for ransomware could create problems and actually make it harder to remediate these situations? And and how do we how do we deal with the, sort of these sort of cutting edge issues? Is is are, is Treasury taking the right approach? Is there a different approach that might be might be advisable here? Um, I. Look, the ransomware issue is, I mean, it is really, really on the increase um, in the last six months. Um, and this is a real issue that companies really struggle with. Um, if you can imagine that you have data locked up and you're not able to determine how to unlock it, um, you have a very difficult choice to make. Um, you may have a choice that leads you only to a decision that you've got to pay. Um, and I think what Treasury did is very helpful in a way because it gives some clear guidance around how they're thinking about that's kind of those kinds of payments. So if it involves a sanctioned entity, if you're able to determine that, determine that Treasury's now said, you know, this is something that you've got to be coming to us about. And I think companies really do need to do that. The thing that I found was helpful about that advisory is that um, it gives you, it gives companies very clear um, sense that if they come to Treasury and to OFAC at the outset, if they communicate to law enforcement and to Treasury in the appropriate way at the outset of an incident, they're going to get credit for that later on. And I think that companies will be, you know, very, um, very, you know, it's going to be a challenging situation to deal with and coming to Treasury is a big deal. Um, but but the way I read that was sort of inviting companies to do that and it becomes more of a, they can kind of work through the situation together. And I think that could be yeah. helpful. I actually think that's really important for Treasury too, because I don't know how much real um, life, um, real, real time experience Treasury has in seeing how ransomware really plays out for companies and how true right. it can be. So it's a, it's a good thing. I will say, you know, that OFAC advisory came out the same day that a FinCEN advisory came out. Um, and FinCEN's advisory dealt with um, some of the, the sort of firms that are involved in negotiating and dealing with some of these issues. Um, and it's kind of a, it, that was a helpful advisory as well. I would love to see Treasury get to a place, and I know Danny's going to love this, but I would love just Treasury to get to a place where we're sending out one advisory, one piece of guidance um, that really captures all of the issues on, a, on something like ransomware, because you really need to read them together to see exactly yeah. what Treasury is yeah. advising. Um, and I, I would love to see a Treasury advisory um, sort of capability come come into play. Juan, did you have some Jimmy, yeah, yeah, Jimmy, I, I just want to weigh in on a, a couple points. And, and Jen's last point reminds me of uh, former Deputy Secretary Sam Bodman, uh, who recently passed away. So condolences to him and his family. Uh, but he once said at the moment when, when DHS was being created, we were creating TFI, he asked the question, why aren't we just 
merging FinCEN and OFAC? Why do we have two different cultures? Why, why do we have different voices going out to the regulatory system? And he wasn't wrong in, in, a sense, in the sense that Jen just described, which is we, we do have to, the US Treasury and the, the government has to present more consistent regulatory um, sort of voice uh, to concerns and, and guidance. And it's also the fact that in the marketplace, and this goes to the sort of the origins of, of Treasury in, in, in this space and what Danny was saying, you know, the sanctions world is really now part of the, the world of risk. Right. right and and anti money laundering controls and, and questions are blended with sanctions risk and in fact it was one of the most important things that we pushed uh, from treasury which was to say you know people need to ad adhere to these things not just because OFAC's telling them to or not just because FinCEN's issued an advisory but because it's fundamental to their financial risks and integrity it's fundamental to the protection of the financial system to Danny's earlier point. And what makes these tools so powerful ultimately is that these issues are embedded as fundamental questions of risk for the private sector. And Jamil, this helps explain why, and there's was a lot of frustration post JCPOA that you didn't have a flood of private sector actors going back into Iran. And it wasn't just that you had the sword of Damocles over people's head because you had potential snapback or a new US administration. Right. It was the fact that we had over time embedded the idea that doing business in and with Iran was risky. It was risky because there wasn't transparency and accountability to Danny's point. Um, right. And the sanctions were just one layer of that risk. And there, was, uh, there were other layers of risk to include corruption, human rights abuses and other things. And, and I would just, just say on the, on the ransomware point, what's fascinating to me is you have a maturation of treasury um, blending and dovetailing with the cyber issues uh, mm. that we're talking about. And so this is a great example of Treasury sort of catching up to the realities of ransomware. Uh, the way the FBI over time in some ways caught up to the realities of hostage payments, right, in, in the kidnap for ransom context. Yeah. Um, and I had the hostage portfolio for four years at the White House in addition to the CT. So you watch this over and over again and the angst of families that were being affected by uh, these cases and the US government not able to provide clarity. So we're, in some ways we're maturing there. And Treasury has also, in the, even in the sanctions domain uh, with the 2015 executive order from President Obama, you know, set forth sanctions that have to deal with cyber malicious activity, uh, which the European Union now has a similar sanctioned regime for. So, Interestingly, Jamil, your world, the cyber world, um, and the treasury world are really beginning to blend in some fundamental ways, yeah. precisely because of the risks in the digital economy. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point, Juan. And you know, so Jen, one of the things I was thinking about as, as I look at this question from Paula Doyle, one of our one of our visiting fellows at NSI, she asked about um, movements of money and hedge funds, and I'd expand it to private equity and other other sources of financing uh, between China and Iran and investments in those spaces. One of the things you mentioned was talking about this idea of of working with the private sector, Juan mentioned it just now too, uh, the importance of sort of the role the private sector plays in this space. How can, how, you know, Paul asked about how we can strengthen attribution and timely monitoring of these large movements of funds between these countries and, and into and out of these countries, uh, like, like threat actors like China, Iran, I'd add Russia, North Korea to the list. Um, you know, obviously not a lot of money moving into North Korea because of, because of our own sanctions regime, but how can we, how can we identify those? Is there a way to work more effectively with the private sector to really understand these financing mechanisms and in particular, 
these alternative financing vehicles, whether it's PE or hedge funds, is there a space for Treasury to do more work? It's not necessarily regulatory, uh, but that, that creates these kind of relationships uh, of the kind that you described. Yeah, I think um, public-private sector partnerships are sort of the holy grail of AML-CFT. They're really hard to do in practice. Uh, we, we have to do more of them. We have to set them up in a way um, that allows for a really good relationship building. And, uh, you know, relationship building sounds like a kind of a broad term, but people really need to feel comfortable that they can share um, their expertise and knowledge without feeling they're walking into an enforcement action. And right. that's the problem. Um, you know, Treasury would love to have better insights into how everything works. I think Treasury professionals understand that they don't work in a financial institution every day. They don't know everything about how financing mechanisms work. Uh, they're very expert, but they would love to have better insight. The problem is that it's very nerve wracking for the private sector to come into a government conversation without feeling like they, like I said, they're setting themselves up for some kind of enforcement action. Right. So the big challenge is how do you create an environment relationships where people can do that? Now, Treasury is doing that in, I think, a, a lot of really wonderful ways right now. They have set up an office of innovation at FinCEN. Um, I think that should be expanded. I think we should do even more of that. You know, my understanding is that the discussion on crypto assets and the travel rule and how to implement that has been an extremely productive um, a kind of public-private sector discussion. And that's yeah. something that's really being developed in real time. So those things are really important and they're really hard to do. We need to do more of them and not just in the United States, but globally. Yeah. So, so Danny, you know, you and Juan do this day to day, as does Jen and her job at Brunswick and you guys at, at, uh, at uh, Finn. How do, do, you, do you, is your sense that, the, that this relationship with the private sector is getting better, that, that there is a more comfortable zone in which uh, the private sector can come into Treasury and say, look, we want to understand better how to navigate this. Uh, we don't, we have some concerns. We, what we don't want is an enforcement action. Is there, is there such a thing as sort of a safe zone and, and, and the ability to have that conversation or is that still a challenge? And, do we need legislative authority or policy changes to make that happen and create that, build those relationships? Well, I think, you know, yes and no. I think every, every, everything that you said is, is true. I think we're getting better at it. I think that it's hard. Um, I, and, and, and I think that the, the private sector, um, you know, is, is, is cautious um, in its relationship with the government, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes, you know, for reasons that I don't think are quite as, you know, quite as plausible. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that the private sector did not take um, AML-CFT seriously enough uh, until uh, really un until about 10 years ago when there began a series of uh, very aggressive uh, regulatory and, and in particular uh, DOJ, uh, Department of Justice led actions against some of the largest banks in the world, including yeah. banks in the United States. And you had a situation um, in which um, you had a, you know, virtually every major global financial institution in the world was operating under a deferred prosecution agreement from the U.S. Justice Department. And the question you, you had to ask yourself at the time is, um, you know, because these are entities that are spending literally billions of dollars on compliance and they still can't avoid these enforcement actions. So where's the breakdown? Is the breakdown yeah. on this, is, is there some problem with the law that makes it impossible to follow? Is there some problem uh, with the way it's being enforced or, or they're being supervised? Or is there some fundamental problem with the way uh, financial institutions um, are, are, going, are going about this? And I yeah. think, that, you know, that led, uh, you know, frankly, that whole sort of 
you know, very, uh, uh, you know, cathartic moment uh, for everybody involved in the AML-CFT world, you know, for that period of time, you know, about 10 years ago, and really extending until today, has been yeah. trying to work through those questions. And there's a lot of ways to work through those, to, to those questions. And I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of truth in all aspects of it. I think that the, 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 the laws and the rules themselves, um, you know, could be improved in a variety of ways. I think that um, there needs to be, um, but, but at, at the end of the day, uh, the reason why this is taken seriously in the private sector is because, you know, they know, they know that the Justice Department and the Fed and the OCC take this stuff quite seriously. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, you know, yeah, I, I, do think, I do think that we need to, uh, you know, draw everyone together. And I also think, um, and Jen, and Jen um, uh, alluded to this in, 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 in her response, um, one of the ways we're going to get through this is through technology. Uh, because mm-hmm. right now, and, and when I talk about how the laws need to change and evolve, you know, right now, you know, we're dealing with a 20th century AML-CFT regulatory regime. You know, and we're almost a quarter of the way through the 21st century. And there's been a lot of technological developments over these over this past quarter century. And we're still dealing with a system that relies on narrative on, on, on you know, on, 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 on SARS written out narratives yeah. you know, from based on what somebody sees. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then you think about the the tremendous uh, opportunities that technology provides us right now um, in terms of improving that in terms of making it more efficient for financial institutions to comply with these rules, for, their, uh, not, for, for them to be better at it, for their, to, them to do it more cheaply, uh, for them to provide more useful information, and for then the authorities to actually be, take, be able to take advantage and use that information. These yeah. this is all stuff that's on the table now, and it's a really exciting time. Um, and, yeah. and that's where I see this whole discussion leading. You know, rather than sort of looking back on what happened at a particular financial institution in 2009, um, you know, and wondering what, why this person did this thing. It's an interesting question. Um, but I think that the real interesting part of this discussion is where is this going? And the answer is, you know, and I don't think, you know, you don't have to be, you know, a, a magician to see this. Um, the answer is that this is, the technology is going to be at the end of the day, what transforms this system. And it's already starting to do that. Yeah. You know, Jen, to, to, to Danny's point about sort of, you know, getting ahead of new trends that are taking place and, and, and maybe utilizing technology or the like, um, Sergio Rodriguez from the audience asked a question, uh, sort of the Bush administration, um, you know, about uh, about whether fraud is overtaking AML as a potential problem for the financial system. Um, he notes that, you know, obviously a lot has happened in just in, in, in recent months and, and, and weeks and months with COVID um, and the increase in fraud. Do we think that it still remains uh, a write off for financial institutions or has it reached sort of that 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 catastrophic uh, risk versus attritional risk uh, when it comes to uh, fraud versus AML in, in this phase? And, and do, should we, if, if the answer is yes, should we expect to see, uh, to Danny's point, sort of more potential regulatory action in this space? And if so, what do we do about that? Well, I think COVID is ushering in a whole new um, sort of <laughs> scale of fraud. And, and you know, it sort of remains to be seen. I don't, I think, you know, this is where Again, to go back to Treasury and how Treasury, um, uh, what what value Treasury and TFI offer. TFI has been doing, you know, national risk assessments, and we did one, and then we did another, and then another in rapid successive succession. They're accelerating um, how frequently they do these risk assessments, and I think they're incredibly useful for getting at questions yeah. like this. Um, and that's that's part of the the great thing about having TFI set up the way it is. Um, it also speaks to the importance of having 
a sort of a center of gravity in the U.S. government. So that it's not just Treasury's point of view, but they're bringing together, you know, law enforcement and all of the data to try to determine really where we are with risk. And that's not just important for fraud versus money laundering. It's important for, you know, all of the emerging risks that we're looking at and, and getting at questions that you've posed, I think, at the beginning here, um, sort of what is the real risk for something like cryptocurrency? Um, how, 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 how large of a risk is that compared to, frankly, large U.S. financial institutions that are doing global, you know, global payments. That's where our risk assessment comes in. And it's really the foundation for everything. And again, speaks to the importance of of maintaining that capability at Treasury and and the beauty of having Treasury set up that way. Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot. Yeah, please. Jump in on on that question that Sergio asked and, and, and shout out to Sergio. Sergio is another uh, proud member of the uh, of the of the Treasury alumni uh, fraternity, uh, but you know, look, fraud. I don't think it's a question of whether fraud is overtaking AML as a risk. Fraud has always been an enormous risk uh, to financial institutions. The difference has been uh, that fraud affects the bottom line of a financial institution in much more fundamental way than AML CFT did. So financial institutions have always dealt with the risk of fraud differently from the risks that AML CFT uh, presents because it's it, uh, it approaches from a very bottom line um, perspective, which actually has caused financial institutions over the years to be incredibly forward-leaning and incredibly creative um, uh, in, in fighting fraud and in availing themselves of, of technology. Anybody who has a credit card who gets calls from their, you know, from their, from their credit card company about potential fraud alerts, he knows, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually unbelievable how they're able to figure this stuff out. I think that one of the challenges is how do we get the financial uh, community to think about and to apply technology in the case of AML in the same way that they've always applied it in the case of how do they manage the risk of AML CFT in the same way that they've always incorporated thinking about managing the risk into the fundamental way of a fraud into the fundamental way that they approach their businesses. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a great a great point. And you know, speaking of 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 this issue of how you think about risk and how you integrate it in, um, Ian Talley asked a question about sort of sanctions and, and how they operate. And Juan, I wanted to this to you, but I'd, I'd welcome Jen and, and Danny's thoughts on this too. Uh, Ian sort of raises the question of: Is it really this issue issue of is it really about sanctions working? Is it really that black and white? Right? Is there an argument that in in a lot of ways uh, the way that we've implemented sanctions, for example, in the Trump administration against Iran or Venezuela or North Korea? Uh, that it's going to serve a future administration, whether that's Biden or, or second Trump administration, that's serving their financial goals, right? Is there is there a way to think about sort of this the creation of the political pressure, um, even if the sanctions aren't fully effective, that it still serves overall foreign policy goals? Is, is it are we thinking about this, or perhaps are my questions thinking about this in too binary a way? Uh, absolutely, yes, Jamil. I I think it's a great question and a great framing that you gave because I think we often think about sanctions and related financial measures um, in far too binary a way. And, 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 and by that, I mean three things. One, um, sanctions can be implemented to try to achieve a variety of goals, right? It's not just maximalist regime change. It's not just uh, strategic behavioral change. It's not just interrupting flows of funds, right? It, it can be a whole range of things that you're trying to achieve and, and we would often say in Treasury, and, and this almost became our mantra, was, you know, we're trying to make it harder, costlier, and riskier for America's enemies to raise and, mon- and move money around the world. That was the bottom line. And yeah. if you affect them strategically, 
in concert with other tools and, and, and pressure and incentives, uh, and, and you've changed their behavior, then that's a home run. But sanctions can achieve lots of things that, that aren't sort of the maximalist goal in a, in a policy debate or strategy, and very often can't on their own anyway. So that's one, one sort of layer of this, which is we've got to be clear as to what we're trying to achieve. We've got to be sort of humble about what sanctions can do on their own. And we've got to sort of measure it the right way. The second point is, is a great one that you've made, uh, Jamil, which is sanctions often form part of a broader strategy that's not just about the measure taken today, but it's about the diplomatic uh, messaging. It's about the norm yeah. setting. It's about a whole range of things that are triggered from that action. And for those that often say, look, sanctions don't work, what, what are they useful for, whatever, you know, the targets of sanctions care a whole lot about being sanctioned. And so you, you may say, look, you don't, you don't really matter or they don't have money in the U.S. or, you know, you can't measure the results. The reality is, as Danny said in the Iran context, it becomes the singular issue that they want to talk about. In the North Korean context, when we use Section 311 against Banco Delta Asia, um, and you saw the collapse of that bank, the freezing of $25 million of North Korean assets, all they wanted to talk to Danny Glazer about was getting that $25 million back and getting access to the financial right. system. All they wanted to talk about in the context of the nuclear talks. So we can we can say, look, they don't matter, they're symbolic, whatever, but they matter to the targets and they actually yeah. have impact. And a, fi- a yeah. final point, Jamil, and this is one that I've been writing about more, and I think it's really important, is that the targets of these of these tools, especially those that apply asymmetric strategies around the world, like Russia with their hybrid warfare strategies, or the North Koreans, or even terrorist groups, see our sanctions and our tools fundamentally as an element of warfare. So there was a reason why the title Treasury's War, I think, was apt. Yeah. Not so much because we view it as warfare, but because the targets view it as warfare. And I think yeah. the further we move into these asymmetric domains and conflict, the more that this domain is going to be seen as a form of warfare. It already is by countries like Russia and China. The Russians themselves, when Congress threatened to de-swift the Russian banks, the Russians themselves said twice, we will consider this an act of war if you yeah. do it. So we're yeah. already in that mode. Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's 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 right to think about this the way because I mean that's how that's perceived in the world, right? If we're you utilize these tools, you know, and and the economy is so critical to nations functioning, right? You know, we have to recognize that some nations will see that as exactly just that—a tool of warfare. So, uh, so Jen, I think you're going to get the last question. It's actually a combined question for our audience uh, from Daniel uh, Flaherty and Michael Skoll. Um, uh, it's a question about sort of our approach to sanctions, right? Um, you know, obviously, um, one of the theories about why the Iran sanctions were so effective was it was really that combined multilateral approach that we brought to bear, uh, the combined UN Security Council sanctions that really put pressure on, and frankly, it included, you know, our, our sort of adversaries in Russia and China bringing to bear pressure. Um, and then a sort of related question was, you know, the Biden-Harris team has indicated they're, they're more likely to move to a return to a more multilateral approach. Um, they've also indicated we might move towards our, our prior policies on Iran and China. Do we worry that sanctions might be cut back prematurely, for example, uh, on Venezuela and the like? And so two questions combined to you, Jen, and sort of last word to you um, on this issue. I'm, I, Jamil, what is, sorry, tell me again, what's the, yeah. what is the question? So two questions, one, one for Daniel Flaherty, right? 
are do we do we see us moving in more of a multilateral direction? Is that the right thing to do? Is that what was yeah. what was really effective on on Iran? And then do we worry that as we move to a more multilateral approach for players, places where there's not consensus, Venezuela, Iran, China, might we see a weakening of our of our policy there? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it, again, it feels like kind of a, all, sort of a, um, a binary choice that is, is not truly binary. Um, I, as I said at the outset, I think it's fundamentally, it's fundamental to the success of sanctions that we take an, a, a multilateral approach. And that, that requires a lot of work, a lot of groundwork and a lot of, um, you know, sort of the willingness to really strategize with other countries and understand, you know, where they're coming from and how they're coming to the table, what their issues are and work through things. It's, it's really, it's, it's like, I don't mean to sound trite. It's really hard to do that and come out at a place where you can have a combined approach, a multilateral approach, but it's fundamental. Um, I, I think as long as the U.S., is able to go to countries with, um, you know, and I think I, I'm going to sound really old school about this, really conduct-based um, um, approaches. So yeah. we're not just going and saying we, we need sanctions on Venezuela, we need sanctions on X country, whatever. We have a rationale that resonates, yeah. that makes sense. You can build, you can build support for that, not just with other governments, but you build support for that in the private sector, and you and you and you increase the chance that there that these sanctions are going to be you know, well implemented. So right. I, I don't think it's a binary choice. I think it's really about how do you come to a specific problem? What are, are what are U.S. interests and, and, and what are what is the case that we're making? Are we making yeah. the right case? Are we making a case that, that resonates and, yeah. and that we can get support for? Yeah, Jen, great points. And I think a great way to end uh, this terrific conversation. Uh, you know, thank you to you, Jen, Juan, Danny, for your leadership on these issues. Thanks for being here today. Uh, to the audience, thanks for joining us. We have over 160 people with us today. A lot of folks from NSI, a lot of other folks. Really appreciate it. For those of you who are interested in following up with us and hearing more about this issue, we will have another session probably in early December. Please keep an eye on our on the, on the websites, our, our website, nationalsecurity.gmu.edu, but also our partners' websites at cnas.org, csis.org, and fdd.org. Uh, really appreciate everybody being here. Thanks to our partners for joining with us, and thanks again to the panel. Awesome conversation. Have a great afternoon, y'all. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.